0: Okay, so um, thank you very much to Ryan um, for uh, his role in um, serving as a facilitator and to the World Affairs Council and to everyone who's been, the, been involved, Bill Lyon and so forth, in making this workshop a possibility. So uh, the title, as Ryan mentioned, of my presentation is Russia's War Against Ukraine: Teaching Opportunities and Challenges. So Almost six months have passed since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. Uh, It's estimated that 200 Ukrainian troops are killed each day and 500 Russian troops perish each day. Families have been torn apart. Russians have used rape as a weapon of war. Children have watched unspeakable horror that will traumatize them for years, if not for life abandoned animals roam the streets. The war has raged for only uh, six months, which is not long compared to World Wars I and II, let alone to the 30 Years War uh, of 1618 to 1648. And uh, I would say that Americans' attention seems to be sagging. That's something of an impressionistic assessment but it's no longer always the top of the news, superseded of course, by major events happening in our country Uh, and on any given day, I myself might find uh, its horrors a bit too much to read about. So given this context, does it even make sense to use the word opportunity in conjunction with teaching about a war so profoundly unnecessary and horrific? Perhaps not, perhaps it would be better and more appropriate indeed to talk about our duty to teach about the war and about the intertwined yet separate histories of Ukraine and Russia. In fulfilling that duty, we have possibilities, Uh, but there are also big challenges and my presentation today is going to focus uh, especially on some of the challenges. I've been really glad to see that since the early days and weeks of the war, uh, teachers were bringing uh, the war and Ukrainian and Russian history uh, more and more into the classroom. The the New York Times has some excellent materials, uh, resources for educators. um, I sent to the workshop organizers, uh, resources from uh, the Illinois Civics Hub. So there's tremendous, Resources out there, and it's been heartening to to see uh, that uh, there's been more and more teaching about Russia and Ukraine and the former Soviet Union, uh, because it's my sense that after 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, teaching about Russia and the Soviet Union uh, declined somewhat. I guess there was no more need to quote unquote know our enemy or less of a pressing need. So it's heartening to know, I estimate, that many more elementary and secondary school students now know what NATO is. You'll have presentations or you have had presentations today on NATO. Uh, They might know something more about about NATO's expansion after 1991. And they might just be able to find Ukraine and Russia and who knows, maybe even Kazakhstan uh, on a map. It's also very, very heartening uh, and salutary, I think, to see that Ukrainian history is being taught separately from that of Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, We have, to be sure, a long, long way to go, uh, but this is a very, very positive development. But with the duty to teach about the war and Ukrainian and Russian in history and Russian history have come some major challenges. So one of the challenges is the tenacity of myths or at best partial truths about Russia. So since Russia invaded Ukraine, but also before then, uh, I've been very, very disturbed by how much commentary about Russia is filled with cliches and stereotypes. This is, of course, understandable to some extent uh, because we've been struggling to make sense of a senseless and unnecessary war. And in this context, given the fast development of events, it's understandable that we resort to easy explanations and revive assertions, claims, uh, and so forth about Russia that has seemed to lose some of their staying power after 1991. So one of the claims about Russia that I find especially disturbing is the myth of authoritarianism as somehow natural to Russia. Uh, if you will, as part of the, of the Russian soul, as, well, as part of Russia's political DNA. Uh, and I've been surprised and disappointed that even extremely distinguished historians have disseminated various forms of this myth that Russia is naturally authoritarian. Again, note my emphasis here on the word naturally. The claim here is not that there have been authoritarian leaders in the Soviet and Tsarist past and that authoritarianism is one political possible model for Russian political development. Rather, the claim is that this is the default uh, setting, so to speak, for Russia, for Russia's political organization. So one of the Sorry. Uh, one of the historians who, I, whom I was particularly surprised to find um, making such claims is Stephen Kotkin, a historian at Princeton University, a prolific biographer of Stalin. He's now published two out of the three volumes um, in his trilogy, he's also the, import, the author of a very important book on the Soviet collapse and a very influential book that he published in the mid nineties on uh, Stalin's showcase city, uh, Magdita and its centrality to Soviet industrialization. So I greatly, greatly admire Professor Kotkin's work. I know him um, pretty well. I went to graduate school with him And I would venture to say that I wouldn't be a Soviet historian today without his example of defecting from central European history and moving into the Russian and Soviet field and learning um, Russian in graduate school uh, at Berkeley. So I'm really just taking uh, his claim here as an opportunity and really, again, a duty Uh, to talk about some of the problematic ways in which Russia has been depicted, uh, especially, not only, but especially uh, since Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February. Perhaps you um, heard or read the interview that he gave to David Remnick, uh, the journalist David Remnick, uh, back in March. Uh, I believe that the, the interview was published in the New Yorker, It was everybody was talking about it. And many colleagues I talked to had uh, great praise for it. And indeed, there are many excellent points that he makes um, in the interview. And he's extremely knowledgeable about uh, Russia and the Soviet Union and world affairs more generally. But when I, saw that he uh, made the statement that's before you, uh, I was stunned and very, very disappointed. So I'm going to to read it. I I will read it, but I won't be able to inject his New York slash New Jersey accent. Uh, So what we have today in Russia is not some kind of surprise. It's not some kind of deviation from a historical pattern. Way before NATO existed in the 19th century, Russia looked like this. It had an autocrat, it had repression, it had militarism, it had suspicion of foreigners and the West. This is the Russia that we know, and it's not a Russia that arrived yesterday or in the 1990s. It's not a response to the actions of the West, There are internal processes in Russia that account for where we are today. The worst part of this dynamic in Russian history is the conflation of the Russian state with a personal ruler. Instead of getting the strong state that they want to manage the Gulf with the West and push and force Russia up to the highest level they, get instead, they instead get a personalist regime. They get a dictatorship, which usually becomes a despotism. So again, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people probably have heard Professor Kotkin's statement. It's had tremendous influence, I would say, um, on those looking to understand uh, Russia's uh, recent um, development, Since Putin um, became uh, president and acting president in in 1999, and more recently has uh, unleashed this horrific war. I want to, before I tell you what I find so problematic about it and ways in which we might use his statement and I would say skepticism about it as a teaching tool. I want to say something about the context in which Professor Kotkin made this claim. So David Remnick had just asked, has just said this, we've been hearing voices both past and present saying that the reason for what has happened, that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as George Kennan put it, the st- is the strategic wonder of the eastward expansion of NATO The great power realist school historian, John Mearsheimer, insists that a great deal of the blame for what we've been witnessing must go to the United States. I thought we'd begin with your analysis of that argument. And what you see before you is Professor Kotkin's retort in which he wants to create a great deal of distance between his own views and um, the View of former um, uh, expert on um, the Soviet Union, George Kennan. So Kotkin's comments about the peculiarities of Russian history then are a rejoinder to the assertion that because of NATO's expansion after 1991, uh, which went against the promises, for example, that. Um, Uh, George Bush made as the Soviet Union was collapsing, Russia has felt justifiably threatened. And when in 2014, it looked more and more possible that Ukraine was going to join NATO, uh, this crossed Russia's red line, Russia annexed Crimea, uh, and uh, the The key point here is then a division disagreement on the role of NATO, NATO's expansion in generating Russia's perceived need for uh, security and its perceived fear, its fear of Ukraine. So before I tell you why I find Professor Kotkin's comments so problematic, let me point out two corollaries to the Russia as naturally authoritarian myth. The first one is what I call Tsarist determinism. So here you see none other than Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin wearing the attire, military attire of Russian Tsars, sort of, note the fighter jet, uh, jets on the sash, but from a distance, from a great distance, his garb resembles that of the Russian czars, such as Nicholas II, the last Russian czar. So I wanna talk now about some of the components of the Tsarist determinism myth. That Russia's political development, namely under Putin has naturally and inevitably reverted to some of the default setting of key attributes of Tsarist Russia. The first is this, the conflation of the Russian state with a personal ruler, or what's sometimes called patrimonialism. The key components of patrimonialism are first, that rulers regard matters of state as a personal affair, Second, that there is a lack of distinction between political sovereignty and ownership of property. And third, that there is a conflation of political and economic power. The seminal text for the claim that Russian patrimonialism was a defining element of the Tsarist regime, the regime of of the Tsars, Uh, is Richard Pipes, Russia under the old regime. Pipes at one who's deceased now taught Russian history at Harvard. The second component is a historical or comparative dimension that namely that the West's superior industrial, technological, military development and the need to catch up with the West. Note for example, Kotkin's comment, quote, to manage the Gulf with the West and push and force Russia up to the highest level, they get instead a personal regime. What's also implicit here then is a dichotomy between Russia and Europe, a dichotomy that I find particularly problematic because Tsarist and even Soviet Russia were part of a common European home, even if they occupied at times very different parts of the house and uh, would not uh, play by each other's house rules. The third component of Czarist determinism is militarism and expansionism, especially it's claimed due to Russia's geographical location and concomitantly Russia's history of being invaded invaded by the Mongols, invaded by France, invaded by Nazi Germany. So a second corollary to the Russia is naturally authoritarian. Russia as authoritarian is the Russia we know, have known, always will know, is the myth of Soviet determinism. So those of you who are watching, I wonder if you have any comments on what's going on in the image within the uh, red square, no pun intended here. They've superimposed part of Putin's face on Stalin's. Right, right, take your pick. Either Putin is being superimposed upon Stalin or Stalin is being Imposed upon Putin, um, but yes, that's that's exactly what's going on. And so the implication then is what? Say that they're similar. Yeah, that they're similar. That you know that Putin might be kind of Stalin redux. That it's inevitable if you want to kind of read between the lines that it's inevitable that Putin would have taken on many of Stalin's characteristics. Uh, And so this uh, image that you see before you um, is the uh, kind of lead image uh, for an article by another biographer of Stalin, um, Simon Montefiore, who wrote an article in the New Statesman uh, a few weeks after, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, in which he actually creates a rather complicated assessment of to what extent Putin is reincarnating, one might say, uh, key elements of Stalin's rule and Stalinism. So the argument for Soviet uh, Soviet determinism is this: that under Putin, Russia has naturally and inevitably reverted to the default setting of key elements of Soviet political culture. That you know, even if you haven't studied the Soviet Union much, you probably associate with the Soviet Union, especially with Stalin's uh, regime: tyranny, repression, fear, control of the media. Uh, The key component of the explanation for why uh, Putin and how Putin has revived and and necessarily inevitably revived those elements of Stalin's rule is that uh, the Soviet security apparatus was never really demolished after 1991, after the Soviet collapse. Putin was, as is well known, was a former KGB officer kind of mid-level KGB officer who was in Dresden, and uh, East Germany at the time of the Soviet collapse. And Putin it's pointed out has become over the course of his leadership, uh, increasingly reliant on the uh, post-Soviet, on the Russian security services, on the FSB. So there is a tendency in this myth of Soviet determinism, to confuse similarities between Stalin and Putin with a kind of implicit claim of causal determinism that Putin would inevitably become a Stalinist. Sabag Montefiore for his part notes similarities between Stalin and Putin, but actually rejects the argument that Putinism and Stalinism are one and the same thing. So he says, for example, Stalin's influence is imprinted everywhere in the state structure of Russia. He remains omnipresent. Putin's repression at home increasingly resembles Stalinist tyranny in its cult of fear, rallying of patriotic displays, crushing of protests, brazen lies and total control of media. Although without the mass deportations and mass shootings. So far. So how do Montefiore and and others, I re- recommended, for example, um, you'll see in uh, my last on my last slide, additional resources an article by Sidney Tarot. How do um, scholars reject the Soviet and specifically Stalinist determinism argument? This is a huge, huge question. Uh, But one thing that they do is to note major discontinuities between and differences between Stalin and Putin. Putin, for example, is no longer a Marxist or a Marxist-Leninist. There's no communist party in uh, Russia. Save for nationalism, Putin doesn't really have an ideology. Moreover, in terms of foreign policy, you know, a lot is, is, is there. There tends to be this knee-jerk tendency to point out that both Stalin and Putin were imperialists, wanting to expand uh, the territory controlled by the Soviet Union or Russia, either formally or informally. But actually, it's it's been pointed out, and I think this is a really good uh, good point that Stalin's general practice was to be very cautious in getting involved in military conflicts. Uh, For example, uh, in the Korean War, basically was a proxy war in which the Soviet Union uh, relied on China and others to fight, especially whenever there was a doubt that he couldn't win. Of course, and it's been claimed that Stalin, for example, never would have invaded Ukraine. Who knows? You know, we can we could spend hours, days uh, debating that. Uh, but I think there is something to the to the contrast between a relatively uh, prudent, uh, cautious, Stalin and a more reckless uh, Putin. So, now that we've examined the Russia as naturally authoritarian myth and its corollaries, uh, let's put it under a microscope. Does it hold up? And I would, my guess would be that if you tried to teach about this in class, you, in your classes, you would find that it has a lot of staying power, that it would be very, very hard for students to let go of this, because it's reinforced so much uh, in in the media and you know maybe in movies that they've uh, seen. So it's been said that all myths have a kernel of truth to them. You know whether that's true, I don't know. But but let's look at you know the the very short uh, statement that I read you. Um, from Kotkin's interview with uh, David Remnick. Is there any truth there? I definitely agree with him that in explaining uh, Russian political development uh, under Putin, we do need to focus on Russia's internal processes and definitely not see Russia as a kind of puppet, just kind of reacting to what uh, the United States, Europe and NATO do, uh, that's, that's a, a, an extremely, extremely well-taken point. Uh, and I would say that it's also a point that furthers, hopefully, will further study about Russia's um, internal processes, and hopefully more and more government funding of programs to um, make the study of um, Russia possible at the secondary and post-secondary uh, and elementary uh, level. Uh, he's also absolutely right that there is this strain in Zaras that is to say pre-1917 and Soviet post-1917 political culture, in terms of some of the, by political culture, I mean, some of the no- basic norms and values uh, in political activity. He's definitely right that you can look back to uh, Tsarist Russia and you can look at uh, definite periods in Soviet history and find the exercise of power as a kind of political power uh, in a personalist way or what's been caused called patrimonialism. Uh, governing through people rather than institutions. Absolutely. Numerous, numerous examples. So if there is some truth in the myth then, what are the problems? Well, I think there are quite a few of them. One is determinism. So while Kotkin has made many good points in the statement that I read to you. What really troubles me is his claim, this is the Russia we know. And what he's implying, again, this is the Russia we will always know. Of course, one's philosophy of history is crucial here. And this would be an opportunity to ask students you know, whether they believe that because historical events turned out a certain way, they had to turn out that way, why they believe that, whether they think that there uh, could be events or situations in which their beliefs could be uh, challenged. Another major problem is oversimplification. In general, a key po- in my view, a key problem with historical determinism is that it simplifies historical processes that are complicated, messy, and contingent. More on this below under uh, what does this narrative of Russia as destined to be authoritarian uh, leave out. Essentialism. There's not much difference if any between the Russia is naturally authoritarian myth and an essentialist view of Russia and Russian political culture. So by essentialism, um, we I'm talking about the idea that certain categories, whether things, groups or countries, have qualities and attributes that are um, inherent and unchangeable. Moreover, this myth tends to, in its various forms, tends to reinscribe the binary of Russia, it's Russia, the world is now in a situation where it's Russia versus the West. This binary between Russia and the West. Sometimes conflated with a binary opposition of Russia versus Europe. Ukraine is Europe, Russia is not Europe. And this is just so pervasive in the media today. It's just extremely hard to get away from it. And there's almost, not only is there no, is it pervasive and there's almost no questioning of it. To question it at this point, it seems to me, would be to probably be accused of being soft on Russia. So why is it problematic, even if we get away, even if we don't go into all the, the, the nuances of Russian and Soviet history about ways in which, and, and, and kind of martial arguments about why Tsarist Russia was part of Europe, about you know, what the, about say, the Soviet project's debt to the European enlightenment. Why is this problematic? Re, well, reinscribing the Russia versus the West narrative, which Professor Kotkin and many other distinguished historians, political scientists, and journalists have done, uh, is actually repeating the narrative, the claim, the binary that Putin wants, himself wants to use to stoke militarism and legitimize his rule. This is precisely the worldview that Putin has. The West is against us. The West has been more and more against us over the last 20 or so years. Moreover, this myth leaves out a lot. I don't, because of time limitations, have the space to elaborate on all that's left out but it certainly leaves out some very different and and also important and powerful strands of Russia's political developments. Uh, One of which, for example, is reform from above in reform that to some extent limited um, czarist power and prerogatives under Alexander II. It leaves out Russian liberalism in the late 19th and early 20th century, weaker than in the West to be sure, but it's there. It leaves out dissidents and human rights in the Soviet period and the ways in which uh, Soviet dissidents drew upon um, knowledge of Soviet law and Western legal norms Sorry for repeating that Soviet versus the West dichotomy. They are an example of what not to do in class. And it also really leaves out Gorbachev, who um, dispensed with a great deal of the militarism of the Soviet period, Uh, used the rhetoric of Europe as the common European home in which the Soviet Union was part of. and, you know, presided over a period in Soviet history of democratization launched from above. Then another um, perspective is that of, you know, thinking comparatively. So it could be useful to point out to students cases that the cases of Germany and Japan remind us that it's possible for countries to break with authoritarianism, even when it's been a central part of their historical and political development. There's, there, there's nothing, that there really are no uh, un, unchangeable default settings of political development. And the fact that democracy is under siege in the United States and that we can find powerful examples of personalism and patrimonialism in our politics these days, uh, reminds us that default settings for political norms and practices can change in unexpected and even uh, amazingly for many of us, rapid ways. So, and I would imagine Professor Kotkin would have some brilliant uh, rejoinders to me and I for, for these points, and I, w- I would look forward to debating him. Maybe I'll get the chance someday. So if we reject the Russia as naturally authoritarian myth, how do we explain Russia's political development after 1991, including Putin's war on Ukraine? And how do we explain how Russia went from a brief period of electoral democracy, 1991 to 1993, 1991 to 1998, to you know a nearly totalitarian, uh, the ne- nearly totalitarian regime that it is? I'm not going to answer this question. That's a different presentation. But what I would reject, of course, is the. Russia as naturally authoritarian myth and the corollaries that I just gave you. Um, This would be a great time to introduce, you know, questions with students about the importance of contingent factors, chance factors, uh, such as the major global financial crisis in 1998. Uh, And it would be, it's also a time to point out that um, the, Transformation that Russia has gone through has occurred at a time uh, in which globally we've seen uh, the proliferation of what's been called competitive or electoral authoritarianisms. That is to say, um, political systems in which yes, there are elections, but they're marked by an uneven playing field based on formal and informal rules that put up barriers to participation, um, abuses of power by the state apparatus for maximizing incumbent votes, electoral fraud, and so forth. You know, The post-Cold War period has been a time of the proliferation of electoral um, or competitive authoritarianism in much of Africa, in post-communist p- communist Eurasia, and in Latin America. And that concept, by the way, of competitive competitive authoritarianism is uh, one that was first advanced by uh, Stephen Levitsky and Lucien Way. So to conclude, Russia's war on Ukraine has provided educators with, I think, a duty and some tremendous opportunities to teach students about historical and political analysis, and to develop um, their capacity for abstract thought. Um, it strikes me that the issues that I've raised here uh, are so, you know, so contentious that it that it would be a good idea to to um, approach them perhaps by having carefully structured debates. Um, I remember a debate I had in fifth grade that still, you know, you know, echoes in my mind. And I realized that this is that these, you know, where we live in a polarized world and that having debates is <clears throat> perhaps a risky and stressful experience. But I think any time in which when teaching about Russia and other parts of the world that you can uh, bring in, conversation, diff- different points of view, uh, that's a very, very positive thing. Um, it seems to me, another another thing that I've done in my own classes um, is to, you know, have students be, be act as investigative journalists and prepare podcasts, uh, for exa- example, short documentaries and so forth. So, And I'm sure you have lots of creative ideas for how to teach some of this uh, material or the other uh, issues that you're learning about today. Uh, And I just end with some um, articles that you might find interesting if you wanna delve into some of these issues uh, more deeply. And um, I can also send around to the organizers uh, one more piece, the article by Levitsky and um, Lucian Way that I mentioned. So that's what I have to say today. And I really thank you for your um, attention. Mm-hmm.